Uh, okay, uh, you can open your Bibles uh, to Mark 4. We're going to be preaching from uh, the t- a beautiful uh, story uh, that is, yeah, powerful and just an incredible story of the Lord's goodness and grace and uh, what he has to teach us this morning. So this is Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. Perfect. Uh, and for some reason, this one NIV is the wrong NIV. So I'm going to read it from the screen. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your kindness and generosity to us. And we see it in a myriad of ways. But one of the ways we see it most clearly is in the giving of the word of God from you to us. So we say to you, we are grateful to you, and we pray that you would convict our hearts through the preaching of your word of sin, so that we may confess and repent, convict us of areas where we have wrong thinking and correct that, and may we sit in submission under the authority of your word. Father, we pray for those in our church who are hurting, who are going without, who are struggling, whether it's relationally or emotionally or physically or with housing or with jobs or financially, Father, we pray that your kingdom would come in Atlanta as it is in heaven. Father, we pray for our church community that you would continue to give opportunities for people to graft in who are longing to have a deeper and a richer community connection. Father, may may we be the hands and feet of Christ, both to the people that walk in the doors at Redeemer as well as the neighbors around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I get to step into the pulpit after Leon, Pastor Mac, has preached the last three weeks. And we have been uh, kind of going through some parables. Uh, Jesus has been teaching on some parables. We're here, and he has been uh, proclaiming the Word of God uh, to a large crowd. As we know from last week, a large crowd that lined the Sea of Galilee. He taught these parables, these stories, the parable of the sower, of the lamp, of the mustard seed. And Pastor Matt preached about that last week, that the disciples were out with Jesus in a fishing boat kind of further from shore so they could use the water as a natural amplifier for the sound. When evening came and Jesus had finished teaching, they're out in the boat instead of returning to Peter's house, which was their usual spot to kind of hang out and stay at when they were in Capernaum, when they're in this town, Jesus directed his disciples to sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, the Bible doesn't tell us much about the boat they were in. And I also am assuming that given that we live in Atlanta and not a coastal city, there's not too many of you that are kind of nautical experts. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background of what's going on here. But what they were more than likely kind of in, what kind of boat they were in, was a first century fishing boat. It was believed to be about 27 feet long. They could hold somewhere around 8 to 15 people. And uh, in 1985, about um, how long ago is that? I'm 38, so 36 years ago. Um, uh, 36 years ago, in 1985, there actually was a boat that was recovered in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee that they think was probably from the first century. So that's kind of where they get a lot of this information. If you Google it, it's called the Jesus boat, which seems a little presumptuous that it was his boat, but, you know, I'm not a uh, archaeologist, so I'll let them figure that out. Um, but we do know from the scriptures that several of these disciples were fishermen. So this isn't you and I in the boat. Like these are men who know what they're doing out in the water. Peter and his brother Andrew, wonderful man. James and John were in business together as fishermen. So it's safe to assume they were regulars at doing just this very thing, being out in the Sea of Galilee in a fishing boat. Now, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's 680 feet below sea level. It's enclosed by hills and mountains, just to get a mental picture of what's going on here. And the hills on the east side are 2,000 feet tall. On top of those hills and mountains is cool, dry air, and around the Sea of Galilee is warm, warm, moist air. And I am not a meteorologist, but apparently that combination, the, the, the cool, dry air above, the warm, moist air below, results in these strong, sudden storms, just like, being, just like is being described in Mark 4. And this is what happened on this particular evening. This violent windstorm rose out of nowhere, whirling winds and, and, and causing massive waves to crash against the boat. One wave after another tossed that boat. The waves began to break one after another. They were relentless. One wave had barely ended until the next one comes ahead just after it. Water getting into the boat. They probably didn't even have a chance to regain their balance once they got knocked off. They're probably barking orders at each other to start scooping water out of the boat to kind of shift the weight around so they can handle these waves. And I want to take a quick pause just to help us feel a little bit about what is going on here. Let's say, let's do a quick raising of the hands here. Has anybody ever been in a boat before? All right, way more than I expected. That's wonderful. Keep your hand raised if you've ever been in a boat on an ocean or a sea. Okay, and have you ever been in a boat, keep your hand raised, if you have ever been on a boat that is around 20 feet tall, taking on water, scared for your life? Yes, I hope that I knew you would have your hand raised, Ronald. Ronald's got some stories back there. But when we read this story, it's kind of hard, except for Ronald, uh, to get our head around what is going on here. Because we haven't ever felt the same feeling that these men felt in this boat. 
I tried to think of some examples. It's kind of like being on an airplane. I recently uh, flew with my family, and we hit a little turbulence. So you hit some rocky weather, and, and you hit some turbulence, and your plane's kind of going up and down, which is scary in and of itself. And you start, you know, you strap on your seatbelt if you don't have it on already. The uh, flight attendant comes on. The overhead speaker tells you to don't go to the bathroom. This is not a good time to get up. But it's like that, but then the doors blow off the plane. It's like if you're on MARTA, and everybody's been on MARTA where every once in a while that, that con- I guess it's a conductor or a driver for MARTA, conductor. The conductor for MARTA, like you're like, hey, the dude's kind of in a bad mood. Like I feel like we're going a little faster than normal, and you start to shake a little bit. It's like that, but then the guy comes over to the loudspeaker, and he says, the brakes don't work anymore. Think about the knot in your stomach if you heard that when you were on MARTA. That is what's going on. This is the terrifying situation. It's not you and I out in a canoe out in the Chattahoochee when a motorboat comes by and kind of rocks the canoe a little bit. This is an opportunity where these men who are experienced fishermen are terrified to the point where they are running around or moving around this boat quickly to the point where they are waking up Jesus because they're so scared. And so just where is Jesus? Jesus is asleep at the stern of the boat, which would have been the back of the boat, probably a small hole. It's H-U-L-L for you you know, non-nautical people out there below the deck where he was asleep with a pillow, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of like when somebody's you know, hanging out late at night and they grab a pillow and you're like, hey, don't go to sleep yet. And you're like, and somebody else is like, bro, they already got the pillow. Like they are planning to go to sleep. Jesus went into that little stern like holding a pillow, like he's ready to go to sleep. And even in... This even being Jesus, even being blocked from the windstorm and the waves, being below the deck, he may not have been hit by the water, but there's no chance that it was easy for him to be asleep in this moment. Yet there he was, asleep on a cushion and for all appearances, quite indifferent and undisturbed by it all. A couple of years ago, we had this unique instance on our street late at night, and I am um, one that sometimes takes me a while to fall asleep at night, but once I'm asleep, I am dead asleep. It's honestly kind of a funny joke with our neighbors because sometimes when we have some extra activity on our street over in Washington Park, I'll wake up to a flurry of text messages between them all that I just never even wake up for at all. And so a couple of years ago, um, there was this uh, vehicle parked outside, right outside of our uh, house, so just on the street, uh, just past the mailbox. And has anybody in here ever heard of a fur bus? Very good. I honestly didn't think any of you would admit to having heard of a fur bus, uh, but I'm proud of you. It means that we've created a culture of grace in this church, uh, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but those of you who don't know, a fur bus is in essence like, a uh, a small bus that people get in to kind of have a, a extended good time uh, in the evening, and this fur bus was parked right in front of our house, and it's like two two fifteen two thirty in the morning, and it is just pumping music. And so this is not a crazy abnormal occurrence um, to have music blaring outside, you know. And we live across the street from a park, but two thirty in the morning it caught us off guard and was a little alarming. And so my wife, who wakes up like a normal person when she hears noise, she she kind of uh, you know pops up and apparently says this a few times before. She says it loud enough for me to wake up, but she says, "Drew, are you awake?" 
And I didn't wake up. And so I learned later this was not a question of, like, actually asking, am I awake? This is more of a command coming from my wife. Drew, are you awake? And the voice gets louder. Drew, are you awake? And at that point, I'm like, I am 100% awake and ready to do whatever needs to be done. And what needed to be done, I thought, was to go downstairs and tell this fur bus to keep it moving. But I was told that wasn't what what was happening. She just wanted me to be awake in this moment so we could kind of experience it together. And what I realized when I read this story, A, that I thought that I just slept really hard, but more I just learned that me and Jesus are very similar and that we sleep through things. And B, is that if my wife wanted my attention and my companionship in that moment of a fur bus outside, I could only imagine, scared for your life, how much you long for the attention of Jesus in that moment. But it was not the fact that Jesus was sleeping that bothered the disciples. They probably understood that he was exhausted from preaching and teaching, and they probably wanted him to sleep. What bothered them was the fact that Jesus was, or at least appeared to be, 100% indifferent to the plight that bothered them. They were all... They were all about reaction right now, quick reactions to save their lives. They were probably bailing out water, steering the boat over the waves. And yet here is Jesus, indifferent, conked out while they're trying to keep him and everyone else alive in the boat. They, were, they woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Another translation says, don't you care that we are perishing. I don't know if there's another line in the Bible that encompasses a feeling that so often we have as men and women. Jesus, where are you when we are suffering? And the disciples weren't the first people to feel this way. King David in the Psalms, this is Psalm 10, it says, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalmist in Psalm 22 says, Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. The disciples said, Don't you care that we are perishing? This may be easy, it may be hard, but I want you to think back on a time where you felt that same question inside of you. Maybe you went to a routine doctor's visit and the doctor said, something has flagged up and I want you to come back for additional screening. You went back for the second time and they said, I want you to go see a specialty doctor for this specific issue. That knot in your stomach of, Jesus, don't you care about my life? Or your marriage is struggling. Maybe you got in a fight on the way to church this morning, had to pull over, redo your makeup because you didn't want to come in all, you know, with your eyes bloodshot from crying on the way to church because your marriage has been in such a tough spot. Maybe you sat there last night in bed after your spouse went to sleep and just looked up and asked Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? 
Maybe you're struggling with your job and you feel like I can't get ahead in my career. I feel like everybody else is taking steps forward and I am at a plateau and I feel like I'm not going to be able to provide for my kids as they get older or take care of my spouse or do the things that you've called me to as a single person. Jesus, don't you care that I am perishing? Speaking of kids, maybe you just, you experienced your kids getting home, your kid getting sent home from school or summer camp again and again. Maybe you get that call from the teacher and that shows up, a caller ID shows up on your phone and you have that knot in your stomach and you're like, Jesus, why won't you answer these prayers? Don't you care that we are perishing? Your business running out of money, lingering mental health problems, single and longing to be married. Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? See, the disciples are just like us. They expected Jesus to do something. They wanted him to do something. And I think this is the real question behind all the other questions of where is God and why is he allowing this to happen? If he truly cared, he would not delay in his response, we think. If he, he would do something, he would make the storm go away, or he would never allow such a storm in the first place. Because if we're honest, the storms of life, just like that storm 2,000 years ago in the Sea of Galilee, challenges our faith. C.S. Lewis wrote in A Grief Observed, he said, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth of falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. I thought this illustration hit me right between the eyes. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you merely are using it to hold up a box. But suppose you had to hang, had to grab hold and hang by that rope off a bridge. Wouldn't you then discover how much you really trusted it? Brothers and sisters at Redeemer, the storms of life truly reveal whether or not we are living what we say we believe. So how did Jesus respond? Jesus awoke, rebuked the wind. He admonished it. He spoke up to both the wind and the sea. He commanded it and said, silence, or the Greek, be mute. He commanded the waves that were rocking, tossing the boat around and said, be still. And in this moment, the Greek tells us that that is a, a moment of authority, but also a moment uh, where the verb being used is a continuous verb. So he rebukes the storm and he says to it, this is not only are you going to stop, you're going to continue to stop. So in that moment, he exercises authority over the weather. He shows his authority, and this is in a similar way as, as I am a father speaking on Father's Day. I have authority over my kids. So if I tell my kids it's time to go to bed because you have summer camp tomorrow, I am doing that as an authority figure in their life. When I tell Luke, no, you cannot go shirtless to summer camp today, like that is a moment of authority over his life and a little window into how the Henley family operates there. But when we do this, when, when we see Jesus doing this, he is literally... By saying, be still in the Greek, in a verb of continuing action, he is putting that storm in time out. He's saying, be still and you stay still. So suddenly the wind stopped at his rebuke, dropped everything it had been carrying, the waves disappeared. So who has power over that wind? 
Who has power over the storms of our lives? God alone has that power. Psalm 107, He calmed the storm and the waves grew silent. Right after that moment, He looks at the disciples and says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Imagine the feeling of Jesus looking at you saying those words. Why are you so afraid? And honestly, if we are authentic to what is actually going on in 2021, I would say the truth is that we are more afraid than we have ever been. This question is not just for individuals, but also for our church. We have in the media, in the world, kind of speaking to us, we have entire business models that are built on monetizing our fear. You pull up CNN.com, you pull up FoxNews.com, you have entire media outlets, not to mention countless hours of podcasts from the left and the right that skew the facts to fight an agenda that makes you, to bring an agenda that makes you, the audience, feel scared and fearful. They know if they can scare you, you'll come back looking for the answer, the solution to that fear tomorrow. And I recently heard a sermon from my brother-in-law that talked about this with politics, that each political party will never claim responsibility for the problems in the world, but are always ready to give the solution for what the other party has caused wrong. And we as the church, we say things out of fear. We say, if this president gets elected, whether it was 2008, whether it was 16, whether it was 20, this president gets elected, what would happen to Christianity? Which is funny because we heard it both from the left on one year and the right on another. See, neither political party has a corner on these fear-based ideologies. We say if Christian nationalism takes root in our country, the future of the church is in jeopardy. If fill-in-the-blank gets elected to the Supreme Court, everything is going to be liberal. And what will happen to us as Christians? What about the future of our children? We have that knot in our stomach that we are so fearful of the future. We're staring at the water, the waves crashing, and looking at Jesus saying, why aren't you doing something? I don't tell you this as a rebuke to you. I say it as a rebuke to myself as well. When COVID hit in March of last year of 2020, I remember the fear inside of myself as well as other leaders at the church of saying, what happens now to Redeemer? Will we be able to transition to being online? What will happen to the people? What happens to the mission of the church? Like Jesus was handcuffed by a pandemic. Racial and political vibes, how will the church stay united through all of this? And where is Jesus? When we have these fearful thoughts, he is perfectly at peace. Just like he was in that boat, he's not afraid, he's not fearful, he's not frightened, he's not scared. He is perfectly at peace. And how does he do that? How do we trust in that model? How do we follow in his footsteps? We follow in that because we cling to the promises of Jesus. Just like it says in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gate of Hades will not overcome it. 
Brothers and sisters, we have a hope to cling to that Jesus is not sitting up there going, well, I had plans. I had these great plans to grow and unify the church. I had these great plans to make men and women of faith more and more like myself. But then President fill-in-the-blank got elected, and now I'm just stuck. We don't, he doesn't look up there and he says, oh, well, I'll just hang on for another four years or another X number of years until the Supreme Court kind of shifts to the way that it's supposed to be. And then I'll be able to get back to doing the work of the kingdom coming. He doesn't look at us and he said, he doesn't look at us and say, oh, well, if these things outside of culture, in culture, outside of your control, if they get fixed through some votes, then everything will go back to norm one, I'll be able to do my work. Brothers and sisters, this is the Jesus that looked at Lazarus and raised him from the dead. Amen? This is the Jesus that took a few loaves of bread and some fish and fed thousands of people. This is the Jesus that when he was pronounced dead, taken down from a cross, was buried in a tomb, three days later came back from the dead. So you can look at your fears in the face and say, that is legitimate, something to be concerned about, but it doesn't scare my Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you and I don't have things that we should be concerned about. It doesn't mean that we don't exercise wisdom in how we navigate being in the world and not of the world. It doesn't mean we don't navigate decisions about politics and parenting and neighboring and, and where our kids are educated, but fear is not the driving factor for those decisions. And how do we get there? We talk to ourselves. And this may feel a little bit weird to you to tell you, but, and sometimes my wife will be driving and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm talking to myself. And it's not that kind of talking to yourself. That's weird when Drew does that. This is talking to yourself like King David talked to himself in Psalm 42. He looks at his fears and he says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Church, it will do us well not to ignore our fears, but to name and identify them. What are we afraid of? We don't live in denial. These fishermen, if waves are crashing onto that boat, if you're in that boat and waves are crashing onto that boat and all of those disciples were just sitting there, you know, playing Uno together on the boat, you'd look at them and be like, something is not right with these people. It doesn't mean we are dishonest about our fears. It means that we process our little fears in light of the big truth of who God is. And if we don't process that, we make a lot of inaccurate and just, we have to spell this, we're not allowed to say this word in our house, D-U-M-B, fear-based decisions. We allow things like the media to attach their leash to our collar and drag us around wherever they want us to go. We look at the scary parts of the world and there are legit things to be fearful about, But that unchecked fear causes us instead to look at the world with compassion. We look at it with a deep fear and how can we run away from it to protect ourselves. We see our neighbors as people to be scared of rather than people to love and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. 
And because peace comes not from looking at the storm and saying, that's not scary, the peace comes from looking at Jesus and says, He loves me and is more powerful than any storm out there. Verse 41, they were terrified and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. And in that moment, their small fears were displaced with a bigger fear. And we think about fear with God. We think of He's angry with us. And that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying here is that our understanding of having a good and godly fear of God means that there is good fear. That fearing God does not mean that God does not love you. And when you truly fear God, other fears will pale in comparison. The disciples went from one fear to another. The greater fear always cast out the smaller one. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Here we see the disciples questioning who Jesus really is and their eyes being opened once again that He is no ordinary man. Worry in our lives comes from forgetting either the power that Jesus has over the or doubting His commitment to us. And what's shocking, what's the most, I didn't think about this honestly, I've read this story a hundred times, but never thought about it until this week, that not only did Jesus calm that storm, but when you think about the storms of your life, and it feels like Jesus is oftentimes far away, what we see from this story is that Jesus was not far away, but in the midst of that storm, where was Jesus? He was right there in that boat. Jesus never left their side. Remember that Jesus has united himself to us in our boat. He will not let us sink because he will not let himself sink in that boat. 2 Corinthians 2.13 says, If we are faithless, if we are cry out because we're worried we're going to die in that storm, if we are faithless, he will remain what? Let's say that again. If we are faithful, he will remain for he cannot deny himself. Psalm 121, Indeed, he who watches over you, Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. In fact, you can recall that when he went to the cross, the real sea, the storms, the waves of God's wrath, who was asleep in that moment? Peter, James, and John. A few months down the road here, when, when Jesus is headed to the cross, His disciples are asleep on Him. Those disciples representing us slept while Jesus stayed awake to face the wrath of God. Jesus has always been, always is, and always will be more aware of our storms and our suffering than we even are. And in the midst of that, He's always in perfect control. And so the ironic question for this is that the ironic question from this story that we ask ourselves is who really got woken up in that story? Yes, Jesus may have been asleep physically in the stern, but Jesus knew what was going on from the very beginning, and the disciples were the ones that were asleep to the power and love of Jesus. So the storm in your life, that thing that's terrifying you, that thing that's keeping you up at night, it may in fact be a blessing from the Lord to wake your heart up to who He is, His power and His love. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your sovereign grace and goodness over our lives.
We're so grateful that in the stories of Scripture we find ourselves and are reminded of your great power and love. May we be people who compare our small fears to the greater understanding of who you are in your power and your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.